Mildred Lawson, Chapter Twenty of Celibates by George Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. One morning after breakfast, Harold said as he rose from table, "You must be very lonely here. Don't you think you would like someone to keep you company?" Mrs. Fargus is in London. We might ask her. She'd be glad to come. You used to like her. That's a long while ago. I don't think she'd amuse me now. She'd talk about art, about things that interest you. I'm away all day, and when I come home in the evening, I'm tired. I'm no society for you. I know that. No, Harold. I assure you, I'm all right. Don't worry about me. I shouldn't care to have Mrs. Fargus here. If I did, I'd say so. I know that you're anxious to please me. I like you better than anyone else. But I don't understand you, Mildred. We never did understand each other. Our tastes are so different," he added hastily, lest his words might be construed into a reproach. "Oh yes, we understand each other very well. I used to think we didn't. I don't think there is anything in me that anyone could not understand. I am afraid I'm a very ordinary person. But I can see that you're bored. I don't mean that you show it, but it would be impossible otherwise. All alone in this house, all day by yourself. You used to read a great deal. You never read now. Are there any books I can bring you from London? Do you want any paints, canvases? You haven't touched your paints since you've been back. You might have your drawing master here. You might go out painting with him. This is just the time of year. I've given up painting. No, Harold. Thank you all the same. I know I'm dull, cheerless. You mustn't mind me. It is only a fit of the blues. It will wear off. One of these days I shall be all right. But do you mind my asking people to the house? Not if it pleases you. But don't do so for me. Harold looked at his watch. I must say goodbye now. I've only just time to catch the train. That same evening, brother and sister sat together in the library. Neither had spoken for some time, and coming at the end of a long silence, Mildred's voice sounded clear and distinct. Alfred Stanby called here today. I wonder he did not call before. There was a note of surprise in his voice, which did not quite correspond with his words. Did he stay long? He stayed for tea. Did you find him changed? It must be five years since you met. He has grown stouter. What did he talk about? Ordinary things. He was very formal. He was very much cut up when you broke off your engagement. You never approved of it. No, but it was not for me that you broke it off. No, it wasn't on account of you. The conversation paused. At last, Harold said. Are you indisposed as ever towards marriage? If Alfred were to propose again, would you have him? I really don't know. Do you want me to marry? I'm not very pleasant company. I'm well aware of that. You know that I didn't mean that, Mildred. I don't want to press you into any marriage. I've always wished you to do what you like, and I have done so. I still want to do what you like, but I can't forget. That if I were to die tomorrow, you would be practically alone in the world, a few cousins. But what makes you think of dying? You're in as good health as ever. 
I'm forty-three, and father died when he was forty-eight. He died of heart disease. I have suffered from my heart, so it is not probable that I shall make very old bones. If I were to die, you would inherit everything. What would become of this place, of this business? Isn't it natural that I should wish to see you settled in life? You think that Alfred would be a suitable match? Would you like to see me marry him? There's nothing against him. He's not very well off. But he's got on while you've been away. He's making, I should say now, at least five hundred pounds a year. That isn't much, but to have increased his income from three to five hundred a year in five years proves that he is a steady man. No one ever doubted Alfred's steadiness. Mildred, it is time to have done with those sneers. I suppose it is. I suppose what you say is right. I've been from pillar to post, and nothing has come of it. Perhaps I was only fitted for marriage after all. And for what better purpose could a woman be fitted? We won't discuss that subject, Mildred answered. If I'm to marry anyone, as well Alfred as another. It was the deeper question that perplexed. Could she accept marriage at all? And in despair she decided that things must take their chance. If she couldn't marry when it came to the point, why, she couldn't. If she married and found marriage impossible, they would have to separate. The experience might be an unpleasant one, but it could not be more unpleasant than her present life, which was driving her to suicide. Marriage seemed a thing that everyone must get through, one of the penalties of existence. Why it should be so, she couldn't think, but it was so. Marriage was supposed to be forever, but nothing was forever. Even if she did marry, she felt that it would not be forever. No, it would not be forever. Further into the future she could not see, nor did she care to look. She remembered that she was not acting fairly towards Alfred. But instead of considering that question, she repelled it. She had suffered enough. Suffering had made her what she was. She must now think of herself. She must get out of her present life. Marriage might be worse but it would be a change, and change she must have. Things must take their course. She did not know whether she would accept or refuse, but she was sure she would like him to propose. He had loved her, and, as he had not married, it was probable that he still loved her. Anyway, she would like to find out. He interested her, yes, in a way, for she no longer understood him. Five years are a long while. He was practically a new man, and she wondered if he had changed as much as she. Perhaps he hated her. Perhaps he had forgiven her. Perhaps he was indifferent to him. Perhaps his conventional politeness was the real man. Perhaps no real man existed underneath it. In that case the pursuit would not prove very exciting. But she did not think that this was so. She remembered certain traits of character certain looks. Thinking of Alfred carried her back to the first years of her girlhood. She was only eighteen when she first met him. He was the first man who had kissed her, and she had lain awake thinking of something which his sister Edith had told her. 
Edith knew that she did not love a man to whom she was engaged, because when he kissed her his kiss did not thrill her. Alfred's kiss had not thrilled so far as Mildred could make out, but she had admired his frock coat, his gloves, and his general bearing had seemed to her most gentlemanly, not to say distinguished. She had felt that she would never feel ashamed of him. His appearance had flattered her girlish vanity, and for nearly two years they had been engaged. She remembered that she had not discovered any new attractions about him. He had always remained at the frock-coat and the glove stage. She remembered that she had, on more than one occasion, wearied of his society, and suspected that there was little in him. They had nevertheless very nearly been married when she was twenty, but Harold had always been opposed to the match, and at the bottom of her heart she had never cared much about it. If she had, she would have married him then. The first stirring influence that had entered into her life was Mrs. Fargus. She could trace everything back to Mrs. Fargus. Mrs. Fargus had awakened all that lay dormant in her desire of self-realization, and, although Mrs. Fargus had not directly impugned marriage, she had said enough to make her understand that it was possible to rebel against marriage, and that in proclaiming antipathy to marriage she would win admiration and would in a measure distinguish herself. And, with the first discovery of a peculiarity of temperament, Mildred had grown intensely interested in herself. She remembered how, day by day, she had made new discoveries in herself, how she had wondered at this being which she was. Her faults at all times had especially interested her. She remembered how frightened, how delighted she had been when she discovered that she was a cruel woman. She had not suspected this till the day she sat in the garden listening to Alfred's reproaches and expostulations. She had thrilled at the thought that she could make a man so unhappy. His grief was wonderful to witness, and involuntary remarks had escaped her admirably designed to draw it forth to exhibit it. She was sorry for him, but in the background of her mind she could not help rejoicing. The instinct of cruelty would not be wholly repressed. But once the interview over, she had thought very little of him. There was little in his nature to attract her, nothing beyond the mere antagonism of opposites. He was straightforward and gross, she was complex and artificial. But in her relations with Ralph there had been sympathy and affection. She had felt sorry that she would not marry him, and his death had come as a painful shock which had affected her life. She had not been able to grieve for him as violently as she would have liked, but she retained a very tender memory. Tears sometimes rose in her eyes when she thought of him, and that passed in the National Gallery and in St. James's Park. For the sentiment of love, if not its realization, was largely appreciated by Mildred, and that a man should choose, and, failing to obtain, should reject all else as inadequate, was singularly attractive to her. All the tenderness that her nature was capable of had vented itself in Ralph. He had been so good to her, so kind, so unquestioning. The time they had spent together had been peaceful 
and full of gentle inspiration. She remembered and thought of him differently from the others. His love had gratified her vanity, but not grossly as Alfred's had done. There had been no feeling of cruelty. She would have been glad to have made him happy. She would have done so if she had been able. But at that time all her energy, will, and all her desire of personal fame were in art. She had striven on the thorny and rocky hill till she could climb no more, and then had crept away to Barbizon, anxious to accept life unconditionally. But life, even as art, had been refused to her. She could not live as others lived. She could only enjoy in her way, and her way was not that of mankind. She had liked Morton very dearly. She had felt pleasure in his conversation, in himself, and, moved by the warmth of the night, she had been drawn to his side, and, as they strayed along the grass-grown paths, and had stooped under the mysterious darkness of the trees, she had taken his arm affectionately, conscious of the effect upon him, but still taking it from personal choice. And as they leaned over the broken paling at the bottom of the garden in front of the stars, it had pleased her that he should put his arm around her, take her face in his hands, and to kiss her lips. The forest, too, the enchantment of the tall trees, and the enigma of the moonlight falling through the branches and lighting up the banks, over which he helped her, had wrought upon her imagination, upon her nerves, and there had been moments when she had thought that she could love him as other women loved. Perhaps she ought to have told no one. He was not altogether to blame, and her eyes softened as she dwelt on the recollection. It was not his fault, nor her fault. She could not control her moods, and she was not responsible for what she said and did when they were upon her. She had felt that she must leave Barbizon. She had felt that she hated artists and studios, and a force which she could not resist had drawn her towards the Delacours. She remembered it all very well. She did not blame Morton. She had acted wrongly, but it was fate. Looking back, she could honestly say that it was impossible for her to have acted otherwise. Those moods of hers. Delacour she had never cared about. He had made love to her, but she had done nothing wrong. Madame Delacour knew she had done nothing wrong, and Mildred hated her for the accusation. She accused me of kissing her husband, Mildred reflected. Mildred often liked to look the truth in the face, but in this instance the truth was unpleasant to look in the face. She shrank from it and excused herself. She was at that time without hope. Everything had gone wrong with her. She had to have a friend. Moreover, she had resolved to break off with Monsieur Delacour as soon as the Panama scandal had passed. But, owing to the accusations of that odious woman, her life had suddenly fallen to pieces. In two more years she would have mastered the French language and might have won some place for herself in literature. But in England she could do nothing. She hated the language. It did not suit her. No, there was nothing for her now to do but to live at Sutton and look after her brother's house, or marry. After all her striving she found herself back at the point whence she had started. 
she had accomplished the circle of life, or nearly so. To fulfill the circle she had to marry. There was nothing in life except a little fruitless striving, and then marriage. If she did not accept marriage, what should she do? She was tired asking herself that question, so she put it aside and applied herself day by day with greater diligence to the conquest of Alfred. Their first letters were quite formal, but one day Alfred was surprised by a letter beginning, My dear Mr. Stanby. He asked himself if the my was intentional or accidental, and after some reflection began his letter, My dear Miss Lawson. A fortnight later he received a letter without the first line of usual address. This seemed to him significant, and he too admitted the first line, and in signing changed the yours truly to yours always. They wrote to each other two or three times a week, and Alfred had frequent appointments with Mildred. She wished to consult him about various things, and made various pretexts for asking him to come and see her. Her flirtations had hitherto been conducted by the aid of books and pictures, but in Alfred's case books and pictures were not possible pretexts. He knew nothing about either. He played several instruments, but could not talk music, and her attempts to play his accompaniments seemed to estrange them. Gardening and tennis she had to fall back upon, and tennis meant the invitation of the young men and women of the neighborhood, and this did not coincide with Mildred's ideas. Her flirtations were severely private. She was not herself in the presence of many people, but she had to make the best of things, and having set the young people of the neighborhood playing their game, she walked about the grounds with Alfred. She had tried on several occasions to elude the past. The slightest allusions would precipitate a conclusion, and destroy the sentiment of distrust that separated and rendered their companionship uncomfortable. But Alfred persistently avoided all allusion to the past. He was very attentive, and clearly preferred her to other girls, but their conversation was strictly formal, and Mildred could not account for this discrepancy. If he cared for her no longer, why did he pay her so much attention? If he did care for her, why did he not tell her so? The wall of formality with which he opposed her puzzled and irritated her. Often she thought it would be well to abandon the adventure, but at least in her flirtations she had not failed. She recalled the number of her victims, the young poets who used to come to see Helene. None had ever hesitated between them. She had only to hold up her little finger to get any one of them away from Helene. It was strange that Alfred remained cold. She knew he was not cold. She remembered the storm of their interview when she broke off their engagement five years ago. He had grown stouter. He still wore a long black frock coat, and now looked like a policeman. His commonplace good looks had changed to a ponderous regularity of feature, but Alfred was instinctively a gentleman, and he made no allusion to her painting that might lead Mildred to suppose that he thought she had failed. That a young girl like Mildred should have chosen to live with such people as the Delacours were still to have wasted a large part of her fortune in their shocking paper 
was a matter which he avoided as carefully as she would the divorce court in the presence of a man whose wife had just left him as for marrying mildred he didn't know what to think she was a pretty woman and for him something of the old charm still lingered but his practical mind saw the danger of taking so flighty a minded person into the respectability of a british home he had loved her he still liked her he didn't mind admitting that but he was no longer a fool about her she had spent her money nearly all of it and he couldn't afford to marry a fortuneless girl she would be an heiress if her brother died and he might die at any moment he suffered from heart disease alfred liked harold and did not wish his death but if harold did go off suddenly alfred saw no reason why he should not ask mildred to marry him he liked her as well as any other girl he thought he would make her a good husband he would be able to manage her better than any other man he was sure of that because he understood her she was a queer one but he thought they'd get along all right but all this was in the future so long as harold lived he kept on just as he was if she met a man she liked better she could have him he had got on very well without her for the last five years there was no hurry he could afford to wait if she couldn't she had thrown him over to go to paris to paint she had come back a failure and now she wanted him to marry because it suited her convenience she could wait sometimes his mood was gentler if she did throw me over it wasn't for any other fellow she always had odd ideas it was because she was clever i never cared for any girl as i did for her by jove i think i'd sooner marry her than anyone else i wish she hadn't spent all her money on that damned socialistic paper at the thought of the paper alfred's face clouded and he remembered that harold had gone into the house to get him a cigar he was longing for a smoke mildred was standing at a little distance talking to a group of players who had just finished a set and he was about to ask her where her brother was when he thought he would go and look for harold himself he passed up the lawn and entered the house by one of the bow windows he examined the pictures in the drawing-room as do those to whom artistic work conveys no sense of merit he paid three hundred for that at the academy i hear it does not look much a woman standing by a tree i suppose it is very good it must be but i think one might find a better way of spending three hundred pounds and that landscape cost a hundred and fifty a lake and a few rushes not a figure in it i should have made the fellow put some figures in it before i paid all that money the frames are very handsome i wonder where that fellow has got to he must be worth six thousand a year people say eight but i always make a rule to deduct if he has six thousand a year he ought surely to give his only sister ten thousand pounds but that cigar i'm dying for a smoke where is he what's he doing all this while i'll try the smoking-room the door was open and the first thing alfred saw was harold sitting in a strange crumpled up attitude on the sofa he sat with his back to the light and the room was lit only by one window 
but even so alfred could distinguish the strange pallor harold he called harold receiving no answer he stepped forward hastily and took the dead man by the shoulders harold the cold of the dead hand answered him and alfred said he's dead then afraid of mistake he shook the corpse and looked into the glassy eyes and the wide open mouth by jove he is dead there can be no doubt heart disease he must have fallen just as he was opening the cigar box he was alive a quarter of an hour ago perhaps he's not dead a couple of minutes dead a couple of minutes or dead a thousand years it is all the same i must call someone i had better ring he laid his hand on the bell and then paused i hadn't thought of that she is an heiress now she is there's no doubt no one knows except me no one saw me enter the house no one i might slip out and propose to her i know she will accept me if i don't propose now my chance will be lost perhaps forever you can't propose to a girl immediately after her brother's death particularly if his death makes her an heiress then after the funeral she may go away she will probably go to london i wouldn't give two pence for my chance new influences besides a girl with six thousand a year sees things in a very different light to a girl who has nothing or next to nothing even if it is the same girl i shall lose her if i don't propose now by jove what a chance if i could only get out of this room without being seen hateful room curious place to choose to die in appropriate too dark gloomy like a grave i won't have it as a smoking-room i'll put the smoking-room somewhere else i wish that butler would stop moving about and get back to his pantry gad supposing he were to catch me i might be had up for murder awful i had better ring the bell if i do i shall lose six thousand a year a terrible game to play but it is worth it here comes the butler alfred slipped behind the door and the servant passed up the passage without entering the room by heavens what a fool i am what have i done if i had been caught behind that door it would have gone hard with me there would have been nothing for it but to have told the truth that having accidentally found the brother dead i was anxious to turn the discovery to account by proposing to the sister i dare say i would be believed improbable that i had murdered him how still he does lie suppose he was only shamming oh he is dead enough i wish i were out of this room everything seems quiet now i mustn't peep i must walk boldly out and take my chance not a sound alfred walked into the wide passage he avoided the boarded places selected the rugs and carpets to walk on and so made his way into the drawing-room and hence on to the lawn then he slipped down a secluded path and returned to the tennis-players from a different side where have you been i went for a stroll round the grounds i thought you would not like my cigar that was all did harold give you a cigar no i've not seen him let's go into the smoking-room and get one no thank you i really don't care to smoke i'd sooner talk to you but you can do both 
Alfred did not reply, and they walked down the pathway in silence. Good heavens, he thought, that cigar. If she insists on going to the smoking room, I must say something, or she'll want to go and fetch a cigar. But I can't think of anything. How difficult it is to keep one's wits about one after what has happened. Do let me fetch you a cigar. No, I assure you, Miss Lawson, that I do not want to smoke. Let's play tennis. Would you like to? No, I don't think I should. I've no racket. Come for a walk instead. I'll lend you my racket. You said you'd like to play with me. So I should another time, but now come and walk round the garden with me. I am so sorry I can't. I have promised to play in this set. It would look so rude if I leave my guests. Never mind being rude. It won't matter for once. Do this for me. Mildred looked up wistfully. Then she said, Ethel and Mary, do you play Mr. Bates and Miss Shield? I'll play in the next set. I'm a little tired. The girls looked round knowingly, and Mildred and Alfred Stanby walked towards the conservatories. End of Mildred Lawson, Chapter 20 Recording by James Carson